We're both going to be presenting today, and Elaine is the professional nurse. I'm just a writer and historian. <laughs> but we've enjoyed working together. Our project is very much still in its working stages. We're still gathering information. So I'll take you through some, some themes and some highlights of information we've discovered so far. But please realize that this is by no means complete yet at this moment. All right. So uh, the whole process of this project has made us think about what is historical truth and how do we find it? And this is one of my favorite novelists. She's written about uh, Audubon and other people, uh, Catherine Gauvier, um, who wrote, truth is discovered backwards, fact buried in the flow of impression, in the rubble of stories told then and now to suit a purpose. So it's a few of those stories that we're going to give to you today um, to give you an idea of what was going on in Butte, Montana uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Our methodology has uh, been a mixture of things, and um, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Uh, Elaine is the real um, oral uh, historian <coughs> gatherer. I've been using um, the medicine, healthcare, and nursing uh, portions of the Montana Oral History Project, where there are transcripts located at uh, the Montana Historical Society. So um, we will look at some voices uh, from that era, some phases of um, information about nursing. Um, I've been interested in 19th century um, studies, so I kind of did the turn of the century. Uh, we'll look at some types of nursing uh, in Butte, uh, world war nurses, a uh, little bit about epidemics. Uh, this is a whole book, <laughs> if not an encyclopedia. Um, the role of the Red Cross, the impact of the Sisters of Charity, and then um, some words about relations to the community, and finally some concluding remarks. And I tend to get excited about topics that I'm excited about, so I have a little timer here, but if I go too long, please stop me. All right. So uh, at the turn of the century, at the turn of the 20th century, um, the we had certain attitudes about nursing, and they weren't uh, terribly professional about their at the attitudes. Um, one young uh, woman said, I don't think it would take me long um, to uh, learn to become a nurse, um, because all a nurse has to do is put damp cloths on patient's forehead and hold his hand. And at the same time, her counterpart at another training school uh, brought an endorsement uh, uh, saying that she surely would make a good nurse because she was big and strong and had a smiling countenance and rosy cheeks. And finally, um, another endorsement, I'm sure you found this girl all right. She attends church and Sunday school regularly and her parents are a good class of people. So a, a little bit about what was going on at the turn of the century. This is a public health nurse uh, visiting a client, a patient, and uh, people were living often in cabins and other places that uh, looked a little desperate. <laughs> um, and also, at the same time, um, the newspapers were referring to nurses in a variety of ways, and I gleaned these titles out of the Butte Minor at the Butte Archives, 
Uh, and I thought they were fascinating because we, they weren't talking about LPNs and RNs at that time because uh, those, those professional uh, concentrations had not yet been created. So nurses were referred to, and I kind of grouped these as where, from where they, they function, in homes, schools, hospitals, um, as kind of a teacher nurse or a welfare nurse, and some of them were even uh, speci uh, specified as child welfare nurses. Then there were muscle training nurses, and those were people probably later who were dealing with uh, uh, polio patients, orthopedic nurses, anti-TB nurses, war nurses, and Red Cross nurses. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Red Cross. This is a Red Cross vehicle. <coughs> you can see the little Red Cross right there, identified it as such. So what was going on with uh, medicine at this, at this time, at the turn of the century? Some other views here of Butte. Uh, another um, public health nurse, Margaret Thomas, in 1925. Um, Butte in 1939. Actually, it still kind of looks that way. <laughs> I have another view of Walkerville. Um, I live just above Walkerville. And um, it was about from the same period, and there's a cow uh, right there in the street in the foreground. So uh, this was sort of uh, the last frontier. But I want to talk first, before I get to the, the war nurses, a little bit about medicine at the turn of the century. And this is from an LPN named Naomi Summers, um, who was interviewed in 1990. Uh, her records are up at the Historical Society. And she recalls her childhood and uh, how uh, injuries and things were dealt with at the time. And I'll just quote a little bit from, from the transcript. She said, you just didn't go to the doctor. Um, running a high temperature, uh, uh, excuse me, one of the home remedies I can remember uh, very well was that I was running a high temperature and my grandmother thought I had the measles. So I got a short shot of whiskey in order uh, to bring the measles out. Um, for a cough, you use a few drops of whiskey, the same whiskey, uh, with some honey, and uh, that cough syrup that was cough syrup at the time. If you stepped on a nail and you usually um, then put bacon poultice on your foot, and that worked really well uh, to get uh, to draw out the pus, and it went away. Now, because I seemed to be outside and getting my head cut open and things a lot, rather than go in for stitches, uh, which you just didn't do, um, my grandmother just knotted my hair together and put it over the wound. It worked beautifully. Uh, my head healed up, and they cut the knots out, and I went on. <laughs> so medicine had a long ways to go. Uh, one of the things that we found um, in trying to find information from people who talked about their experiences as nurses is that there, there's not a whole lot. Uh, we have the few oral histories. Elaine's been gathering some others from folks who are still around and able and willing to speak to us. But uh, I think the nurses in Butte were more busy taking care of injured minors and other people rather than keeping records of what they did. Uh, one of the things, one of the threads uh, of this period was the uh, both world wars and Butte nurses were uh, instrumental in volunteering for both of these wars. Uh, 
And um, thousands of nurses then became um, enrolled. And if you'll notice on these posters, uh, one of the enticements was a lifetime education, free if you qualify, if you can qualify. So uh, people signed up uh, for such uh, service uh, on the anticipation that when they got out of the service, they would be able to um, get a free education, further education. So thousands more nurses are needed, uh, the Montana record said in 1943, and we cannot supply the nursing service required by our armed forces and our civilians unless we have accurate data concerning every nurse in the county, inactive as well as active. And this was from Margaret Kautzel, who had this long title of important positions. Uh, the nurse inventory uh, uh, should not be continued, it said, uh, with, in that same newspaper article, uh, not, should not be confused uh, with the draft. It is entirely voluntary and will, um, and will remain so. That was also talking. We feel certain every nurse in Montana will fulfill her patriotic obligation to register. So this is a view of, there were several hospitals in Butte over time, I think there were about five. And, um, I was an attendee there. <laughs> you were, huh? Okay. Um, so um, these were some of the nurses, and I'm going to talk a little bit about their caps in just a bit, because I have a wonderful comment from uh, one of the oral histories about their caps, which look a little bit like reverse muffin cups, right? <laughs> Little paper muffin cups, but uh, these were in 1900, just at the turn of the century. All right, I'd like to um, talk about three nurses now. I, I don't have photos of them, but I just want to just hit on one little, give you one little story uh, from the oral histories about each of them. Uh, and I think they, these little stories sort of point to big, broader issues uh, in the society at the time and what was going on politically and internationally and so on. But uh, Beatrice Cache was born in 1912 and in her oral history um, she talks about the nurses, especially in the Catholic hospitals, helping the nuns during the wartime, canning fruits and vegetables, not for themselves necessarily, but for the patients. And uh, she says um, that they did it so that the patients would have the proper fruits, vegetables, and vitamins. And um, this was something they just did, as a matter of fact. And so canning uh, is, a, is a thread in this study. And it was uh, looked upon as a patriotic effort, not just by nurses and uh, nuns in the, in the uh, Catholic hospitals, but by every, everyone can. Um, and it was kind of interesting that nurses were involved in that too. This is something they just did, she said, just as we rolled bandages and folded linens and all of these kinds of things as part of our nursing experience. Both sisters and the students at that time, uh, they didn't have students, uh, she says, but whenever there was a free minute, you didn't spend it wasting it studying, you spent it working. Uh, that was the thing to do. These were all home canned vegetables in large quantities. So it was kind of interesting that they pitched in and did that. 
I'd like to move on to Roberta Pullen, who was born in 1921. These are about nine to ten years apart. Roberta Pullen um, was uh, interviewed, and she wanted to talk about her uniform. Uh, and nurses always pay attention, I've discovered. They like their uniforms. So um, I won't read you all of this, but I will read you the part about the caps because it's fascinating to me. And I think you'll find it interesting. Um, she said, we wore anywhere, uh, we wore our uniforms anywhere in the United States. They were proud of them. Our caps were organdy like cupcakes pushed up, um, like a flattened cupcake paper. Um, they had pleats around the edges and darts in the front and gussets so that they stood up like this, and she used her hands, I guess, um, and then they went down uh, uh, the other direction uh, because um, they were, that's the way they were designed. And uh, women wore, uh, she said, French, ro um, French rolls, their hair kind of pulled back in a French roll. And this uh, would cover your French roll back there. <laughs> uh, and hair wasn't supposed to touch your collar. We had removable collars in our hair, in hairnets, and with these caps down there, down here on them. So she, they were covered completely with the caps and the hairnets. We wore starched aprons that covered you completely in the front. They had crossed over straps in the back, and they went uh, clear around and buttoned with two buttons in the back. And then she goes on to talk about uh, the cuff, the, the links they used instead of buttons. They had little uh, French links, and they didn't have pockets, but they had a place to tie their scissors and their bandages and so on. So it, they must have been quite the sight, sort of like the ones that you saw from Murray Hospital there. The third person I'd like to talk about is Joyce Kupal, who was born in 1929. And her story is fascinating. I wish I could go into each of these women, but I just want to hit one little story that they each related. Joyce worked at um, the old uh, hospital in Butte, and um, she worked in the um, obstetrics department. So she was there with the new babies. At one point in her uh, experience there, um, the, there was a fire. And it was an electrical fire for you electrical engineers. And um, I don't quite know what caused it, but what I, she does relate what happened. She said that uh, there was suddenly this huge crack and most of the lights went out except the ones in the nursery because they had some backup there. But um, the babies were had bottles and they were sort of hooked up to something electrical so that they could feed them that way. And the bottles all cracked and broke, and there was smoke and fire and flames all around the nursery, and the baby started crying, and she claims that she started screaming. However, later accounts um, indicate that she, she went into autopilot, I guess, and she rescued the babies. Um, she said no one came. No one came to help until much later and the firemen finally arrived. Um, but as she remembers all of this, um, she said uh, she helped rescue the babies and she was surprised no one else in the hospital even heard what was going on and didn't even seem to smell the smoke. All the babies were saved and uh, she felt really proud of herself because she'd done that and she'd helped with it. Um, so uh, she said, I, I was really surprised, it's a little bit frightening to know that when um, an emergency happens, I don't call for help, I just do things, I just act. Um, 
She said the mother's wing was around the corner and down further away, so I don't think they smelled the smoke or heard every, anything, since I wasn't actually screaming like I thought I was. We got everything squared away, and the next day, when I came to work, the nursing supervisor called me up here, up there. And, she, and well, of course, I was waiting to get a pat, pats on the back and all, and being, a hero, you know, being recognized as a hero. However, the nursing supervisor said, Joyce, you did a wonderful job, but we can't tell a soul. Don't even tell anybody else that works here. And I said, why not? And she said, because the hospital's condemned. Uh, and if anyone finds out that the newborn nursery was on fire, they'll close it down and we don't have any place to send the patients because the new hospital isn't finished yet. So I said, all right. And here I thought I'd done such a noble job. So her loyalty was to the community uh, so the old hospital wouldn't be closed down uh, in advance of when it was. And it was actually closed down within about a year and a half from that event. So I also remember her as the unsung hero of that fire. This woman I'd like just to talk about briefly. I'm in the midst of looking at all of her papers. Irene Wold White was a person who kept everything, and that's really nice for historians. Um, when I was at the research center at the Historical Society, I asked for her papers, and I was expecting a slim little file. They brought out two cartloads of boxes. Um, she kept um, scrapbooks filled with pressed flowers from every event where she got a corsage, I'm sure. She kept all birthday cards, pictures, baby pictures of herself, everything. I'm only about halfway through it, and I just wanted to talk about her because she participated in several aspects of uh, the, the history of nursing in the first half of the 20th century. So that's Irene as a nursing student, she also became uh, a nurse during World War II um, and uh, served in uh, North Africa and in France. And I was just intrigued by her. There, uh, near the end of her life, she was interviewed by the Montana Standard. And in it, um, she reports uh, having uh, lived in tents um, when she was in North Africa and experiencing sandstorms and all kinds of uh, physical uh, hardships there, but she said she loved every minute of it. So in the article in the Montana Standard, it talks about these tents and just mentions them in passing. Uh, at, at later on in her life, um, she and the other nurses who were in her unit were asked to give um, their impressions of what what they remembered the most. And I when this happens, there's a sort of a correlation between what's in the, you know, in the straight facts in the newspaper and then the personal recollection. And um, she wrote a couple paragraphs for a little publication that her unit put together after they, after, way, way after the war. Uh, actually, when MASH was popular on television, she mentions that. So I want to read to you a little because it has to do with the tents. And suddenly I saw those tents in a, in a whole different light. So this is Irene speaking. On reaching North Africa, we were transported to an area near Oran, Africa, where we were to live for a few weeks until the, our hospital was ready to operate. We were assigned to uh, pyramidal 
or primal, she says, I think she means pyramidal, tents, four or five nurses to a tent, which were in place in the area. As I remember, they even had wood floors and cots with mosquito netting in place. Everything seemed to be going well until it rained. I had never before spent a night in a tent, and apparently um, most of the nurses hadn't either because when the tent pegs began to pop out of the ground, we had no idea what to do about it. Fortunately, these tents must have been a strong center, uh, must have had a strong center pole, uh, which kept them from collapsing completely, but it was near panic situation. Also, fortunately, our enlisted men must um, not have been too far away because they sent over some to explain to us that when the lines get wet they shrink and you have to lengthen them. Hard way to learn a lesson, but one I have never forgotten. And she talks a little bit about uh, troops in Saudi Arabia uh, and the sandstorms being similar to things she experienced, she says, in southeastern Washington, Washington State. And um, then she mentions MASH. Um, it's, ex it's exaggerated, she says, of course, but so much of it brings back memories, and it's those memories that we have been trying to get at. Henrietta, can you finish up here? Uh, sure. I, Elaine's going to just has about three slides to cover, oh, so okay. we'll move it on to Elaine. Oh, well, I'll make it quick. I want to first thank you for allowing me to be here today. I'm kind of Henrietta's partner in all of this. Um, as a nurse, I'm really interested in the community's perception of nursing. And how many nurses are here today? Oh, yes. What <laughs> <laughs> nurse? So um, I'm just, when I say a nurse or nursing, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? How about you, Nick? Let me know. What's the first thing? Good help. Good health. Good care. Care. So, and maybe, you know, others are thinking of healthcare workers or just a combination of different things, but um, throughout nursing, the perception has gone from uh, angel of mercy to handmaiden to battle axe, you know, um, nurse ratchet. <coughs> There's a lot of different combinations of nurses and perceptions out there of that um, nurse. And the angel of mercy really comes to mind for the um, Sisters of Charity that really started some of the nursing programs in Butte, Montana. The Sisters of Charity of, of, of Leavenworth, Kansas, um, they became a group in 1950, or 1858 in Leavenworth, and they, they decided that they were going to move west just like everybody else did and kind of follow that mining um, population. So they moved out and 1868 to Helena, Montana. Started a couple of hospitals there. They also started a hospital in Deer Lodge, one in Virginia City. By um, 1880, uh, Butte was getting really big with mining and they decided that, well, we're going to send a couple nurses over to <coughs> Butte and see if we can start a hospital there. And once they got there, they saw this boisterous mining town that was filled with a lot of young men, a lot of miners, a lot of brothels, a lot of prostitutes. 100 bars, I guess they didn't mention restaurants. <laughs> so, um, so here are these two sisters, these two nuns that were really trying to figure out how they were going to get this all started. Yet um, they did start it. They went from bar to bar, 
brothel to brothel, minor to minor, to kind of collect all money that they could. The miners donated the majority of the money because they realized that they needed some help, um, physical help, um, pr health promotion, all of that at that time. So they were able to get about $8,000 to build um, St. James Hospital. And this is just a quick little picture of part of that hospital, not all of it, but it was quite a large hospital for that time. And really at that time period, there weren't a lot of hospitals in the U.S. Most of the nurses were really independent. They were out in the communities with their black bags taking care of patients. They um, carried morphine with them routinely um, until laws were passed where they could no longer do that. But that's how that progressed. So the Sisters of Charity, very brave women, they worked with the community and still do. Um, even at, in 1877 in the Big Hole Battlefield, they rode, um, two sisters, especially two sisters, nurses, rode out to the battlefield 90 miles on horseback to, just to take care of the people that had fallen there. So the, the Sisters of Charity 11 North Kansas still play a very important role in Butte, Montana today. And um, let's see on this clicker. This is just a shot of the operating room, which is near and dear to my heart because I'm an operating room nurse as well. And um, I wanted to also present some of the team players that we have out there. We just don't work in healthcare as a vacuum. We work with physicians every day. Um, a lot of people don't think, they think of nurses as that handmaiden a lot. And for a long time we were. We assisted physicians all the time. The... Um, the handmaiden portion of it really came to being around that turn of the century. But the one person that really stands out to me when I was looking through all the archives is Dr. Carolyn Miguel, very near and dear to Butte, but also to the people of Bozeman. I'm sure you've all heard of her. Um, she started as a, in a poor family, a tenant working family in Missouri, started teaching at the age of 17, went to John Hopkins to become a pathologist, met two people there. One was a physician and then her best friend. Those two people married and moved to Butte and asked her to come along. So she actually um, did go to Butte. She arrived on January 1st, cold, dry Butte with all the um, mining going on at that time. Kind of fell in love with Butte and um, decided to go back to school and become a physician. That took two years at that time. She did it in one year, came back to Butte, and um, really organized nursing. She actually taught at St. James Hospital, or at um, the Murray Hospital. St. James developed a nursing program in 1906, but the Murray Hospital also developed a nursing program in 1901, and she taught in the 1920s and there's in the archives there's some recollection about you know her in particular teaching nurses and she must have been very organized and very swift because her um, her nursing students said you know who is that coming down the hall is it a cyclone is it is it a hurricane no it's dr. McGill <laughs> so um, she went she did a lot of work um, especially during the speculator fire and the speculator killed if I'm not correct on this. Great amount of miners. I want to say over 200. I'm not seeing it in my notes right at this point. She helped with all the other healthcare workers at that point. She also helped in the organizing nursing students and nurses in the 
1918 flu epidemic, which really hit Butte especially hard. There was um, the report of 5,000 um, people that were struck by influenza in the month of October in Butte, and 300, over 300 people died of influenza in that month. So um, she helped those student nurses and the nursing population get those people quarantined in schools, churches, and such. So she was really beneficial to um, Butte in itself, but also Bozeman. She, she developed the um, 320 Ranch. I always want to call it the 360 Ranch. <laughs> but it's the 320 Ranch in Gallatin Gateway. And she was also one of the founders, and I think in some um, sources say the founder of the Museum of the Rockies here in, at MSU. She had a large collection of, um, you know, she was one of those people who liked to collect things, and she brought all her, a lot of Asian artifacts to the museum's first exhibit. So um, kudos to Dr. Miguel. So along with all the nurses that Henrietta mentioned and I had mentioned and the healthcare partners that we work with daily, there was kind of a, a dark side to nursing as well in Butte. Um, maybe some of you have heard of Gertie um, Pitcannon. But she actually was born in Nebraska. She um, went to Chicago and worked at, got an RN at Cook City and moved to Butte. Um, she came to Butte in the early 1900s. From, I think it was 1907 or something like that, and um, she met. She was actually the first um, OR nurse at St. James Hospital, and then she met Dr. Vesta, which wasn't a very good thing for her since he was um, an illegal abortionist at that time. She. Um, quit working at St. James, took up with Dr. Gustaf and started working with him doing this practice. She decided she wanted to no longer be a nurse when he went back to Nebraska to be a chiropractor, to get her chiropractor doctorate, and she came back as a doctor now. Um, by 1930, he died, and then she remarried um, one of the police detectives in Butte at that time. His name was Pitcannon, and Together, they, um, he must have covered up for her, and she did a, a black market baby adoption uh, kind of ring there, and um, did that for quite a long time to the 19, 1955. When she was doing all that, um, she would change her, you know, she wouldn't write down RN, she would just say doctor, she would change all the records. Um, it made it very difficult for people to find who their birth mothers were. Of course, Butte had a high um, population of prostitutes, and so there was a lot of babies out there that were unwanted. And of course, during that time period, socially, it wasn't acceptable to have a child out of wedlock. Um, so, and we didn't have the social programs that we have now, so there were um, very little care for those children. Uh, Gertie made a lot of money off those moms and babies. She got $500 for each baby. So, um, still, not thought of in a good way. I remember I was just in the community and somebody had mentioned her name and um, there was an elderly lady that I was with and she said, well, my father-in-law was one of those babies. So still, very well known in our community. Um, Gertie um, ended up dying in 1959, I think. She lived a long life. Um, you may have heard in Montana Standard, actually um, produced an article about Bernice Baby. Somebody was searching for their birth mother, and it actually became an article in People Magazine on how um, this kind of ring took place. 
I think that's it. Yes. And then Belgrade is one of these. Oh, yes, yes. I think they're all over the Northwest. Yeah. But it was very hard for them, I mean, because those babies now in the 1990s, this article in the early um, 2000s, this article is made. And so those children, you know, my age or older. So, very interesting woman. Uh, I think Henry, you're next. We'll just finish up here quickly so you can ask some questions. I just wanted to show you a couple of newspaper headlines. I won't go in detail to into them. The first one was in 1919, and it was about uh, Miss Margaret M. Hughes, who was one of the first trained nurses in Montana. And it, it kind of gives a the article gives a recap of her life. Uh, it said she has often fought death in the wilds. Pioneer Montana nurses uh, have a wonderful record of saving lives. Never declined a call of duty and so on. It describes her keeping vigil uh, 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 people with the flu epidemic out on a ranch somewhere where there were seven patients that she nursed at one time for three weeks, and they all survived. They all survived. So that was nursing in the wilds. And then later in 1948, I came across this newspaper article. Uh, one of the, our threads is probably going to be the development of practical nurses uh, practical nurses seen as a vital need in the state will form association here. So it's when they began to organize, um, and they gave a definition of what a practical nurse was, and this goes on for several columns. The interesting part is that practical nurses at that time, in 1948, were expected to do all the cooking and laundry and the houses, and they went into private homes mostly, and so they were not just nursing, they were doing the cooking and laundry at the same time. So it, it took a while for professionalism, I think, to occur. So I'd like to end with uh, another quote from Catherine Gauvier. Time is a vessel, the past is the stories we fill it with. And Elaine and I have had the challenge, have had the challenge and are still having the challenge of coming up with finding these stories and um, relating them to people like you. We thank you for listening to our presentation.